This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 6. A New National Covenant. Quote by Patrick Henry, 1788. If I shall be in the minority, I shall have those painful sensations which arise from a conviction of being overpowered in a good cause. Yet I will be a peaceable citizen. My head, my hand, and my heart shall be at liberty to retrieve the loss of liberty and remove the defects of that system in a constitutional way. I wish not to go to violence, but will await with hopes that the spirit which hath predominated in the revolution is not yet gone, nor the cause of those who are attached to the revolution yet lost. I shall therefore patiently wait in expectation of seeing that government changed so as to be compatible with the safety, liberty, and happiness of the people. End quote. Christians lost the battle in 1788. The lawyers in Philadelphia won it. Christians accepted the ratification of the Constitution, not just as good losers, but as enthusiastic cooperators. They have yet to identify their problem as decade by decade, the American Republic grows ever more consistent with the apostate foundation of the Constitution. Christians find themselves besieged today, and they vainly expect to get rid of their problems by a return to the original intent of the framers. On the contrary, what we have today is the political outcome of that original intent, as Patrick Henry warned so long ago. Darwinism, socialism, and several major wars speeded up the process of moral disintegration, but the judicial foundation of this disintegration had been established in 1787 and 88. The political question facing American Christians today is this. How much longer will the Constitution serve as the protector of our legal immunities from state interference? At some point in time, the Constitution will become too great a threat to one side or the other, to covenant breakers who resent any residue of constitutional restraint, or to covenant keepers who have been pushed to the limits of their endurance by the culmination of the original apostate covenant. The Constitution's provisions were written by self-consciously apostate men and conspiratorial Christian colleagues whose understanding of the biblical covenant had been eroded by a lifetime of Newtonian philosophy and training in the pagan classics. Nevertheless, these men were under restraints, political, a Christian doctorate, a Christian electorate, and philosophical, natural rights and natural rights doctrines. Both of these restraints have almost completely disappeared in the 20th century. Thus, the evils implicit in the ratified national covenant have grown more evil over time. Declining restraints. The first set of restraints on the framers was philosophical, a natural rights philosophy. Officially, the Constitution does not recognize natural rights. It was from the beginning far more in tune with the Darwinian world to come than the world of 18th century Whig moral philosophy. Today, almost no one in a place of intellectual influence or political authority defends the older natural rights viewpoint. Take the case of the man who is perhaps the most distinguished and best known legal scholar and judge in American conservatism, Robert Bork. 
Because of his conservative judicial views, Bork was refused confirmation to the Supreme Court by the U.S. Senate in 1987. We might expect him to be the defender of natural rights. Not so. He was the author of a 1971 essay denying the natural rights foundation of judicial decisions. He denied that moral considerations can properly enter into judicial decisions, except insofar as the political decision of the legislature has colored a law. Judges, he insisted, must remain morally neutral. The older, pre-Darwinian moral framework for the for American constitutional law is dead. It was a long time dying, but f- both philosophically and judicially. The humanists have abandoned natural law, so have the so have the theonomists. The Marxists never did accept the theory. Thus, whether the case law approach of the Harvard Law School is adopted, or the case law approach of the Bible, natural law or natural rights philosophy no longer provides either covenantal legitimacy or judicial restraint. The original philosophical moral foundation of of the original constitutional settlement, but not the actual document, has disappeared. It is therefore just a matter of time and escalating crises for the U.S. Constitution to go the way of the Articles of Confederation. It can be redefined into something new by the courts, as has been done over a century, or else it can be replaced by a series of amendments over many years or overnight by a constitutional convention. If the final option is selected by those who make long-term political plans, it is not the Christians who are the likely candidates to achieve a victory. Strangers in their own land. The second set of restraints on the framers was political, Christian voters. They still controlled or heavily influenced state politics. They had lost only the battle in Philadelphia. For a time, they remained a threat to the humanists who ran the country, but it was a downhill battle after 1788. Liberal theologian and University of Chicago professor of church history, Martin Marty, waxes eloquent regarding Franklin and his deist peers. Quote, Fortunately for later Americans, the founding fathers, following the example of Franklin, put their public religion to good use. While church leaders usually forayed only briefly into the public arena and then scurried back to mind their own shops, men of the Enlightenment worked to form a social fabric that assured freedom to the several churches, yet stressed common concerns of society, end quote. What Marty and virtually all contemporary historians fail to disclose is that virtually all of these leaders of the American Enlightenment had a working model for this common social fabric, the Masonic Lodges of America, and in Franklin's case, of France. Some were actual members bound by its oaths, others were simply literate men of their time, and masonry was the religion of the Newtonian era. Its worldview spread far beyond its closed doors in the back rooms of local taverns, the fact most historians fail to mention. Public religion, continues Marty, quote, looked for institutional embodiment. A few enterprising deists thought they should make churches of their movement for enlightenment and public religion, but little came of their efforts, end quote. Then he adds this non-illuminating note, quote, Masonic lodges embodied some of the teachings of public religion, but the public who were not their members did not see them doing so, end quote. This is literally true, but hardly relevant. Of course the public could not see inside the lodges. That was the whole point of lodge secrecy. Had the Christians who voted for the Constitution in 1788 understood what was being done to them and why it was being done, the Constitution would not have been ratified. But secrecy prevailed in the lodges and in Philadelphia. Christians became, to cite the stunning title of Marty's book, Pilgrims in Their Own Land. But are Christians still in their own land? If we are, then this means that there is some sort of continuity between the original civil covenants today 
and civil covenants and today's wilderness condition. If we are strangers in our own land, then this is because we have lost out to interlopers. This, of course, is exactly what the Bible predicts for those who break covenant with God. Quote, the stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. End quote. Deuteronomy 28.43 What was lost can be regained. The means of reconquest is to press toward a new national covenant and a better national covenant with God. Continuity despite discontinuity. I have stressed the covenantal discontinuity between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. I have argued that the Constitution was the product of a coup. This coup was ratified by the voters and thereby given legitimacy retroactively. This covenantal question, the covenantal question is, is the United States now a Christian nation? How can it be if the Constitution is, as I have argued, judicially anti-Christian? Is the United States a Christian nation? The answer lies in the biblical idea of a covenant. Once formally under the terms of God's personal covenant, there is no escape for the individual. The sanctions will eventually be applied, both positive and negative. The same is true for ecclesiastical and national covenants. Some nations have departed completely from the Christian faith in the past, but notably, most notably Northern Africa, which fell militarily to the Muslims in the 7th and 18th centuries. Christians were defeated in history, and their Muslim descendants have suffered from poverty and backwardness ever since. There is no trace of that original Christianity. But what about Europe? World War I, the Nazis, World War II, and the fall of Eastern Europe to the Communists indicate the presence of negative historical sanctions, not an escape from God's covenant. The state's covenant stipulations remain in force. When Jeroboam pulled the ten tribes out of the kingdom of Israel, he did not escape the terms of Israel's covenant. He created a halfway covenant political order. He imposed halfway covenant ritualism. Jehovah's worship with Baalism's rituals. He set up the golden calves and hired the lowest elements of the society to become priests. Nevertheless, northern Israel did not escape the negative sanctions of the national covenant. The nation drifted into apostasy. Ader Lahab imposed pure Baalism, but even under Ahab, there remained 7,000 in Israel in Elijah's day who had not bowed the knee to Baal. The presence of this remnant church provided the historical cont continuity with the original covenant. Their presence allowed God to impose his sanctions. The result was the captivity under Assyria. Was the, the result was, the, was captivity under Assyria. Jeroboam and Ahab had not escaped the covenant. They only brought the historic sanctions of God on Israel. The continuing presence of the church in the United States provides the co covenantal continuity with the true founders of this nation, those tiny bands of Calvinistic Christians who fled from Europe in the 17th century and came to the colonies here to build a city on a hill. The true founding fathers were the nearly forgotten men like William Bradford of Plymouth Colony and John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. John Rolfe of Virginia was another. Like Jeroboam's before them, and also like Roger Williams, Professors Knoll, Hatch, and Marsden looked to the outward symbols of American civil religion and the details of the nation's civil contracts. They believed that there never really had been a national covenant, Ahab's covenantal perspective, and that in any case the Constitutional's Constitution's pluralism is today the true religion of the society. They are incorrect. There is covenantal continuity in the United States as surely as there was in the Northern Kingdom in Elijah's day. It is the continuing presence of people who affirm the gospel that provides covenantal continuity with the past as well as with the future. It is this covenantal continuity that will bring forth and has brought forth God's historic sanctions, sanctions leading either to national obliviation, as they did in North Africa in the 17th century, or to covenantal restoration. 
Let us pray it will be the latter. The U.S. Constitution is one step beyond Jeroboam's golden calves, but not yet the covenant of Ahab's and Jezebel. Today, political leaders are the judicial equivalent of Jeroboam's priesthood. They are morally superior to Ahab's 450 priests of Baal and 450 priests of the groves, Asherah. Christians, therefore, should defend the golden should defend the golden calf of the Constitution as a temporary device that gives us freedom to work for an eventual return to Jerusalem. Jeroboam's halfway covenant world did not survive. Neither did the Articles of Confederation. Jeroboam's halfway covenant moved forward into Ahab's Baalism. We also live under a transitional covenantal settlement. Either this nation will return to its pre-constitution orthodoxy, or else it heads into outright paganism. Judicially speaking, the latter is more likely than the former. We are already judicially pagan. Closing the Constitution's Open End The Constitution is presently a judicially open-ended document. I am hereby asking, what if someday a majority of citizens should vote to close this open end? The Constitution clearly allows amendments. If voters change their minds about any constitutional provision of the past, they possess the authority to rewrite it. To cite Justice Berger regarding the authority of the Supreme Court, but when we decide a constitutional issue, right or wrong, that's that, un until we change it or the people change it. Don't forget that. The people made it and the people can change it. The people could abolish the Supreme Court entirely, end quote. The question of the possibility of legally amending the U.S. Constitution in order to remove all traces of its political pluralism is a question that none of the pluralist defenders of today's anti-Christian pluralistic republic cares to discuss in print. I can hardly blame, blame them. Raising this question exposes to the voting public the existence of the Achilles heel of, of all political pluralism. Its first principle, the sovereignty of the voters, allows pluralism to commit suicide. At any time, and for any reason, a sufficient number of voters can legally amend the U.S. Constitution to abolish its character as a religiously or even politically pluralistic document. My point should be clear enough. Once the political pluralist opens the judicial door to the political expression of all possible views, religious and ideological, this has to include the views of those who say that no one holding a rival view will be allowed to vote, once those holding this covenantal view legally amend the Constitution. The voters already say this to released felons who are not allowed to vote in most states. Why not say it to those who hold religious ideological views that would threaten the very foundations of Christian civilization? When I ask why not, I have in mind pluralism's form formal legal principles, not substantive reasons. This is the inescapable dilemma of demo democratic pluralism. Pluralism officially allows the pluralistic system to make subsequent pluralism illegal. Pluralists do not talk about this very often. The political pluralist cannot escape his own traditional liturgy. Quote, the people giveth and the people taketh away. Blessed be the name of the people. End quote. Conclusion. We cannot expect to go back to the Articles of Confederation, nor do I believe that the Articles were capable in 1781 of solving the covenantal problem of the one and the many, university and diverse, unity and diversity. This document was a halfway covenant. Interstate tariffs, paper money, and other errors had to be dealt with. The Articles needed major revisions, as well as informed men, as well, informed men of the day knew, which is why state legislatures allowed delegates to attend the convention, but only to revise the document, not to replace it. It may be, it may well be that the U.S. Congress in 1787 would not have agreed to the necessary revisions: the strengthening of the executive, the abolition of the unanimous state agreement rule, the abolition of, the abolition of all internal tariffs, and the abolition of state government fiat unbacked paper money. What I object to 
as a Christian, is the continuing silence regarding the two fundamental flaws of the U.S. Constitution. One, the prohibition of a Trinitarian oath for all U.S. officials, and two, the removal of the affirmation of the Bible as the revealed, sovereign, exclusive, and authoritative word of God. Most of the state governments had not made these two covenantal mistakes in 1787. A halfway covenant Christianity cannot survive the clash of irreconcilable worldviews. Neither can a halfway covenant secular humanism. One or the other will prevail. Only if Islam or some other world-transforming religion gains temporary power in a once-Christian country can the continuing battle between Christianity and humanism be put on society's back burner. This is why the U.S. Constitution will be amended, either directly by the voters or by the Supreme Court. This process is already well advanced. The court is amending the Constitution to make it consistent with, sec with the secular humanism that has always undergirded it. It does no good to stand on the sidelines and proclaim that it was never meant to be this way. Of course it was meant to be this way, from the day that Madison began planning his coup against the Articles. Critics of my view of the U.S. Constitution prefer to ignore the truth, namely that the Constitution has become a co convenient smokescreen concealing the true basis of political rule in America. The long-term system of elitist control over national affairs in America, which Rutgers Univ University political scientist Philip Birch described in exhaustive detail in Elites in American History, which Georgetown University's Carol's, Carol Quigley wrote about favorably in Tragedy and Hope, and which George Washington University's Arthur Selwyn Miller wrote about favorably just before he died in 1988, is never mentioned in political and polite academic circles. This system of hidden hierarchies is nonetheless the way our political world works today. The inescapable political fact is this. There must always be judicial representation. This representation can be open or hidden, or more likely, hidden with the illusion of being open. It is time for Christians to cease deluding themselves about the hidden hierarchies of the modern democratic world. There will always be political hierarchies. The question is, will they be open or hidden? In modern democracy, where the political hierarchy is formally open, it is in fact secretly closed. It was planned that way, beginning no later than 1787. Quote by M. E. Bradford, 1977. The Federal District of Columbia, both in its formal character as a capital and also in its self-conscious attempt at a certain visual splendor, is, for every visitor from the somewhat sovereign states, a reminder that the analogy of ancient Rome had a formative effect upon those who conceived and designed it as their one strictly national place. What our fathers called Washington City is thus, at one and the same time, a symbol of their common political aspirations and a, and a specification of the continuity of those objectives with what they knew of the Roman experience. So, we, so are we all informed with the testimony of the eye, however we construe the documentary evidence of original confederation. So say the great monuments, the memorials, the many public buildings, and the seat of government itself. So the statutory placed at the very center of the capital of the United States, and much, much more. But Roman architecture and sculpture were not the primary inspiration for America's early infatuation with the city on the Tiber. That connection came by way of literature, and particularly from readings in Roman history. What Livy, Tacitus, Plutarch, and their associates taught the generation that achieved our independence was the craft of creating, operating, and preserving a republican form of government. For gentlemen of the 18th century, Rome was the obvious point of reference when the conversation turned to republican theory. The Swiss, the Dutch, the Venetians, and of course the Greek city-states sometimes had a place in such considerations, and in New England the memory of holy commonwealths survived. 
Yet Rome had been the Republic, one of the most durable and impressive social organisms in the history of the world. Moreover, there was a many-sided record of how it developed, of how its institutions were undermined, and of the consequences following their declension. This Rome was no construct issuing from deliberations upon the abstract good, no fancy of the closet philosophers. Public men might attend its example with respect, learn from its triumphs and its ruin. On these shores they did, and once we were independent with a special urgency. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.